This is Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. Mark Rushmere is regarded as one of the most talented cricketers of his generation. In 1992, he played for South Africa in the World Cup after the country had been readmitted to the world stage. We talk here on Frontierland about those days, but also about his real passion, conservation and Kariga Game Reserve. This family-run safari reserve was originally created by his father Colin back in the late 1980s. And from listening to Mark speak, you will hear that this is the legacy that he is most proud of. Enjoy. Well, Mark, this is an interview I've been looking forward to because I think I'm going to combine two of my greatest passions, which is cricket and certainly wildlife and conservation. You're known, of course, in the past as being a fantastic cricketer, batsman, but uh, more recently we've connected because you're the uh, director, your family owns the wonderful Kariga Game Reserve. How did that come about? Um, how did how did it start? I mean, anybody knows, and I've visited there. It's an absolutely beautiful part of the Eastern Cape. Was it always your ambition as a family to to have something like that? Yeah, Dean, uh, nice to be here. And yeah, a very interesting question. And um, if if my dad was here today, he'd probably be able to tell you exactly what went through his mind when he when he started Kariga way back in in 1989. Um, yeah, um, my, my father uh, was a lawyer and a, and a businessman, and he had, he, but he was very entrepreneurial, and uh, and he loved uh, nature and wildlife, as did my mother, and uh, he had a he had a business partner at the time, a man, well-known a man called uh, Andrew Savage, and they had a business partnership, and I remember Dad just saying that they had a bit of liquidity in one of their companies, and and this curricular opportunity came up. Uh, in September 1989, it was only 660 hectares. Um, a, a family called the Bardens and Hendrys uh, had put together this parcel of 600 odd hectares. Um, there, there was a bit of uh, game on it, and uh, they had sort of got permission to to build 20 freehold title log chalets. And uh, and Dad sort of said, "Oh, I remember him taking us out there when we were youngsters, myself and my brothers, in our early 20s, saying, what do you guys think?'" And we had we didn't know it all looked quite nice and impressive, and um, he, he sort of said, you know, we we wanted to go to the Kruger, might, we'll create something in the Eastern Cape, and we wanted to go all, up, all the way up to the Kruger National Park, and yeah, he started with this uh, with the, with this curricular journey, and in and in many ways, a lot of people thought he was crazy, they thought it would never work, um, and so it was very very humble beginnings, and and uh, and uh, luckily, you know, Shamwari and Adrian Gardner came along. And uh, even madder than my dad in a way, and they, and they started Shimwari with a view to going for the international market. So, and that was in about '92, and I think Shimwari succeeded in about that they sort of started to gain traction in the UK market by about 1996-1997. And we were just running Kariga as a self-catering um, little game park, uh, very much a white elephant. And then we saw Shimwari succeeding. Dad sort of put together. Uh, more land. Uh, the Fuller family got involved through uh, putting their land into into Kariga in, in 1998. And I remember we opened, our, we, we built the restaurant of Main Lodge in 1999. And off Dad and I went to Indaba actually in 98, and first in 98, and then we had our own stand in 1999. And so we sort of followed Shamwari in the international, for the international market in 1999. So, yeah, so thinking back, very humble beginnings and Thankfully, Shamwari um, and Adrian had a vision uh, which worked, 
and we were able to follow and then a lot of the others sort of followed that and here we are today with the with the Eastern Cape Game Reserves as a real destination in South Africa. Well, that's one of the things I'm writing about in my current book, of course, the fact that uh, Adrian Gardner, yes, he was a pioneer of bringing um, international tourists here or putting the Eastern Cape on the map as a wildlife tourism destination. But of course, the Rushmere's were here for, first, the Folds, you were already in that area. But as you said, it was very, it was very much simple back then. We're now looking at these beautiful five-star um, lodges and reserves with stocked with the big five. But how did it actually come about in terms of that early stuff? And were you, who were your market? Was it domestic tourists? Yeah, so, so it, was, it was the domestic market in the 90s, but then Adrian sort of captured firstly the UK market. So when we followed, we, we were all very much the UK market to start with because, because our links were the 1820 settlers. So there was a link for the UK market with the Eastern Cape and Grahamstown and 1820 settlers and that sort of thing. So that was definitely the first international market that we all tapped into. Uh, Shamwari, ourselves, Amakala, Lalibela, all of us. And from there, uh, we grew into other markets. Today, um, there are three big markets to South Africa. The first, number one, is the UK. Number two is North America, closely followed by Germany. And we're very fortunate that the Eastern Cape has managed to attract the uh, capture the UK and German markets. So uh, the Kruger is very much their, their dominant market is the USA market. Um, and, they, and the buzzword for the for the North America is is Kruger. They think you've got to go somewhere close to the Kruger to have a proper game reserve experience. But all the Americans that find us in Eastern Cape absolutely love it. So that's just a, a sort of um, a buzzword that they've got to get away from. It's not just about the Kruger. There are other destinations in South Africa. But but today um, our dominant markets are the UK and Germany. That's one of my missions, of course, to try and spread this word about the Eastern Cape. I do believe we've got everything here. We've got that variety. And in Kariga, certainly, it's one of the most stunning landscapes I think I've ever experienced on a game drive. And how did that land expand? Because you started off small, but now you're a lot bigger. Yes. So, so as I said, we in 1989, Dad bought the first 660 hectares. And by 1998, we had put together a parcel of about 2,000 hectares. On the uh, on the Kariha River side, uh, going down to the Kariha River Valley, and then we were very fortunate that um, uh, you know we needed to go big five. That was critical. We could see Chamwari had gone big five, and there were other there was talk of other game reserves going big five, like Amakala, like Lalibela, etc. And then uh, a game reserve um, went into liquidation uh, across the R3 R343 from us. That was about another 3,000 hectares, and we acquired that in 2002. And um, we initially acquired it with partners, which we, who we then bought out about a year later. And I remember we were going to Indaba in in May 2004, and uh, we could suddenly make our own decisions. And I just said to Dad, I said, Dad, we need to be big five by the time we go to Indaba. Otherwise, all the work I've been doing over the last four years in the international markets, I could lose. Uh, sort of pace because the likes of the other some of the other game reserves were now going big five. And I remember we I went in Dob and I stand, I was able to put up pictures of lions and elephants and rhino and all sorts of things. And the, the our first elephants and, and lion arrived in May two thousand and four. And in Dob is always in May. So we were in the nick of time. And from then on we really that was the first time we sort of took off quite a bit as soon as we had the big five and especially lion and elephants. And remember you know, Adrian at Shamwari did a lot of research into how to release lime. They first had them in a in a small hect hectare area, 
and they, they fed them a lot to start and then they, only, they studied them and then they released them well we when, when we came along we thought well if Adrian and Shamwari can do it well we can just release them and that's what we did and it succeeded wow. um, same as the elephant yeah. yeah amazing but it's always been a family concern isn't it I know alongside your, your brother Graham and, and Lindy your, your sister um, you're really taking on from the legacy that your father that left. Yes, so very, very much a, a family business. I mean, I played a lot of cricket, so I naturally um, sort of got into the family business early with Dad. So I was involved from the very beginning, and, and obviously Dad was was very much it was was the driver and the creator. That was his, Dad, Dad's an entrepreneur. It was an entrepreneur, a creator, and that was what he was very good at. Um, and then uh, Graham, my brother, who's a lawyer as well, who lived in Johannesburg, was always very involved from the beginning in terms of all the land acquisitions we were making, etc., etc. Being a lawyer, my dad used to talk to him a lot. I think Graham helped a lot of the agreements in the early days. And then he came back to, he wanted to come back and live in the Eastern Cape, and he came back in 2008. Kariche um, had grown substantially, and, and, and we needed help, actually, to, to take it to another level. So he came back in the nick of time. Um, and then, uh, so he's been involved ever since uh, with me. Uh, Dad was involved fully until he died about five or six years ago. You know, he, he died a very happy and contented man. He had a great life. And then my sister Lindy, who lived in lived in Cape Town all these years, um, she came back to the Eastern Cape, and she got sort of fully involved with us from about the beginning of, of 2018. Um, she's adding enormous value. She runs our foundation. She's taken our foundation to new le- new levels. And she's got huge energy, <laughs> we, um, and she, she runs all our digital marketing and lots of other stuff. Uh, so she's very involved. My brother Colin lives overseas, the eldest in the family. Um, he has been involved in a few things along the way. Um, we all equal shareholders, uh, all five children, with my other sister Jean uh, living down in, in Plettenberg Bay. Yeah. Well, you, you, you mentioned that this, this um, reserve grew and the project grew in the 90s, and that was... That was when you were most active with your cricketing career, of course, and I want to come on to your, your sporting background. That's something else, of course, you had in common with your, your, your father, who was a very good cricketer in his own right. Um, you capped in Eastern Province at, uh, at 23. You were on the radar, of course, um, post-isolation of this new era of South African sport, but obviously the Proteas being up there, the flagship, one of the flagship teams in South African sport. And famously, you went on to play for South Africa in their first ever test match post-isolation, which was in Bridgetown, Barbados, and also in the first World Cup back there in 1992. Um, you had some great players in that team, didn't you? And what was it What was it like being immersed in that? And where were you in your cricketing development? Because for a lot of uh, our greatest cricketers, probably in South Africa, they didn't have that opportunity to play an international um, competition. Where, yeah. did it, where did it fall for you in terms of your own development? I started playing for EP sort of at the age of 19 or 20 uh, in about the 1984-85 season. Uh, Dave Richardson, would, uh, I, I played two games under Gavin Cowley, Gavin then retired and then I played for a season under Dave Richardson, who was a, who was a really good captain. And then Kepler Vessels arrived. So Kepler arrived when I was still a youngster in the team, when I was probably 20, 21 years old. Um, and then, you know, he he led EP Cricket for 10, 12 years. I played with, with him most of that time. I did have three seasons with uh, Transvaal. So I ended up playing about 16 seasons in South Africa from, from the age of 20 to, to 35 type of thing. Um, and yeah, I was very, uh, you know, fortunate to, to play in that first World Cup in 1992. Kepler was our captain. I remember at the time there was quite a lot of controversy um, in that they, they, they left Clive Rice out, uh, Jimmy Cook out, and, and then Peter Kirsten, 
Peter Kirsten was then uh, reinstated in the team. And yeah, it was it was tough times because you know people like Clive Rice and Jimmy were unbelievable cricketers, and you know they were at the back end of their 30s, and and you know rightly or wrongly the the selectors made certain selections, and that they picked Kepler as captain. And uh, and yeah, we we did have some some great um, players in that team. I mean, people who who really came through. I mean, John T. Rhodes made a name for himself at that World Cup with that unbelievable runout. Um, I was actually feeling it, fielding an extra cover on the boundary, so I watched the whole thing happen in front of me. And then you have players like Alan Donald, um, uh, Peter Kirsten had an unbelievable tournament. Um, Hansi Cronier was in that, that side, and he came through to, to eventually captain South Africa and have, a, and have a, a tremendous career until, you know, there was, there was quite a lot of sadness towards the end of his career, obviously. But, uh, yeah, so it was, it, it was quite interesting. I was, I was about 28, I think, when I, when I got picked for the World Cup. I played in the, in, in the Rebel, a couple of Rebel one-day games in the Gatting, the Gatting 11. Um, and, uh, you know, the same team that went to the World Cup then went to the West Indies to play in that first test match. So I opened the batting with Andrew Hudson in that first test match. And if I can remember, in a way, we, we were a little bit overawed um, because all we had watched for our 20 years was highlights of international cricket. Now, when you see highlights, uh, when you see highlights, it looks a lot more dramatic than it actually is. So we were watching fast bowlers, you know, run in and kill people, and you thought that these guys were so fast, uh, unbelievable batsmen. So I think we were all a little bit overawed. Luckily, we had Kepler. Who, who sort of um, had played international cricket fairly recently, and he's, he was able to calm us all down. But but it wasn't a natural progression for us that we we had watched, you know, guys playing Test cricket, you know, while we were playing provincial cricket, and then you, then you got picked for your te- picked for the team. It was suddenly boom from nowhere. Suddenly you were on the world stage. So it wasn't that easy for the guys who started. And uh, I remember that the, that was the feeling out as well. And I, even a guy like Andrew Hudson, I remember chatting to him, and he said, Ooh, he didn't think he was good enough when he when he first started in those in those one-day games at the World Cup in 1992. But yeah, it was great times, and we were very honoured to. I was honoured to play in that first Test match. I would have obviously have liked to play more, but yeah, um, things various things happened for a reason. And I'm just grateful for the career I had. A lot of lot of fun, a lot of enjoyment. Played with and against some wonderful players, and it was a great time to play cricket in South Africa because even though we were even though we were isolated, the, the traditional Curry Cup or the cricket in South Africa was very strong because everyone was playing, all the, all the internet, you know, there was no international cricket, so we were, it was real strength versus strength. So it was almost like many test matches we were playing anyway. Um, but it took us a while to find our, our feet in international cricket, but the other guys soon got into it and, you know, we were very competitive from very early on. You played in two wonderful destinations, of course. If you're going to pick two places to play, arguably the West Indies for, for the Test match, of course, but you also played in Australia and New Zealand for the for the World Cup. What was it like touring back in those days? Was it? I mean, now we're used to this modern sports, science, diet, those kind of things. Um, were you left to your own devices in many respects? Yeah, I don't think it was like today. Um, look, we knew, you know, if you had a playing the next day, you you would take it easy. I mean, the, the worst thing you can do is is drink the night before a game of cricket or something like that, and you and you you've got to be fresh and everything like that. So we all knew that, but it certainly wasn't wasn't that scientific. Although we had played under Kepler since I was 20, and we were we were really fit, and he was a hard taskmaster. So Kepler vessels actually knew how to to pull this team into being ready for battle. So we were fit. Um, yeah, and then you know you're playing. You, you suddenly at the Sydney Cricket Ground, these famous cricket grounds, which, which was unbelievable. I remember that the Adelaide Oval, a stunning ground, and then you know 
um, uh, Melbourne, the MCG. I mean, that's unbelievable. I remember fielding on the boundary there. I think when I threw in, I got halfway. It was so, it was so big. And then obviously grounds like the Wacker, which is you know this famous ground in in Perth, which was known for its, its sort of bounce and pace and carry. And yeah, so it was it was just unbe- unbelievable to be involved suddenly in world cricket in in Australia, which is really. No, a, a real place to turn to play cricket. And were you aware that your team were the first in international competition for a long time? I mean, did the politics affect you in any way? Did were you told of the significance, or was it a case of getting on with it? No, no, we were very aware. I mean, we hadn't. I mean, all my all my heroes. I mean, uh, who who didn't play from 1970 to 1990. I mean, we produced some of the greatest cricketers and rugby players in this country during those 20 years. And it was very, very sad that they didn't have the, the chance to sort of portray their skills on the world stage. I mean, I think of people like, I mean, Graham Pollock, who he, luckily he did play 23 tests, but, but Graham Pollock, you know, Barry Richards, Mark Proctor, Clive Russ, I mean, there, there are a host of names. And then in, in crickets, I mean, you, you think of guys like, you know, Donny Gerber. Nas Boerter. I mean, I was with a guy with our famous right wing, Ray Mort, uh, this weekend. We've become pretty friendly th- through the Frisch uh, family. And, you know, I still said to Ray, I still said, oh, Ray, you guys, the backline you had in, in the early 80s, I think has to be one of the great backlines South Africa's ever produced. You had Nas Boerter at, at Flauf, you had Michiel Dupassi at first centre, Donny, then you had Ray and Coral on the, on the wings and Yanni and at fullback. I think Devon Serpentin was was come off. So yeah, that, that was, it was tragic in many ways that um, we actually produced some of our greatest sportsmen in, in my opinion. Um, so we were just, you know, although it was halfway through my career, we, we, we got back in halfway, exactly halfway through, um, at least I had the opportunity to play. So I was more fortunate than a lot of people before me. I mean, that's a great philosophy, of course. I can imagine some of those people. I've had the, had the privilege of meeting the likes of Barry Richards and some of the old rugby players. And uh, there's, they don't seem to portray a bitterness that he didn't have that opportunity. They kind of put it down to, you know, fate or whatever. And it's uh, anyone that says that sport doesn't affect politics, they only have to look at uh, or f- politics affect sport, of course. They only have to look at South Africa and what happened. But now, of course, I know you've been to some of the... The recent matches and the SA20 here, India, the Indian money's, you know, on board. I've just watched some one-day internationals between South Africa and England, and it is a different game in terms of not only the science and the professionalism, but also the money involved in the game. I mean, could you could you make a living out of a good living out of, say, cricket back in the day, or was it? Did you always have to have a sideline? Um, you, I wouldn't say you could make a good living, but you could make a. a, a you could do reasonably well. Particularly if you were 20 old. So I remember having getting my first EP contract, and you know I had two brothers, and they were studying accounts and, and law at university, and I was sort of doing a BCom and, and playing crickets. And, and you get a contract at the age of 20, and you get a sponsored car, and you feel cheapest. But I always thought in the back of my mind, geez, these brothers of mine or other people are going to go flying past us, you know, when they're properly qualified and everything. So you, so you, it feels very good in your early 20s and that type of thing. But you know, I remember my last my last contract for EP in 2000, I think it was 150,000 Rand for the season. But then I was, I was sort of working as well. So if you put two together, you, you could do reasonably well. But you certainly couldn't set yourself up for life at all. It, w- it was more of a living. Um, now, I mean, the, the money that's coming to, come into sport you know, all around the world and into cricket is, is fantastic for the, for the current players. And you know, it just shows you um, if you're in the right place at the right time, things can work out. But but good luck to the guys. I think it's fantastic. And now it's a proper professional career. I mean, and in these days, the game has changed so much that um, T20 cricket is dominating. 
um, and is and is extremely popular, especially to the masses. And you know, you can you can just become a T20 cricket now and make an absolute fortune if you become a good T20 cricket. You never even have to play a first-class game, let alone try and be a Test cricketer. So yeah, the game has changed tremendously, but it's a lot of fun. And uh, and, and I must say, this this SA20 competition has been a great success. So hats off to people like Graham Smith who, who managed to put this together, and I think it's created a lot of interest. I know you've enjoyed watching, Tony. and um, yeah, it's been it's been great fun watching our team. My good mate Adi Burrell is the is the coach of the of the Sunrisers, and uh, looks like they're going to be in the semi-finals. So we are all holding thumbs. But yeah, it's, and, and I, th- I believe it's been, it's a sort of a 10-year contract. So it's sort of our mini, you know, RPL in South Africa, and I think it's going to go from strength to strength. I really do. I mean, for me, I'm all, I spend a lot of time trying to convince people that cricket is a game that they'll come and enjoy and whatever. And I, I have no qualms about recommending a T20 match because if, whether you're a sports fan or not, it's an incredible atmosphere. The crowds are vibrant. There's a lot of kids. There's families there and whatever. And as you said, the Indians have put a lot of money into marketing this. So as you said, it's going to be good for not only South Africa but certainly for the Eastern Cape to have a success franchise here but talking about cricket and going back to tourism would you believe I was sitting in the uh, in the Bloemfontein cricket ground recently watching South Africa play England and the couple next to me were here in South Africa for the first time and I instinctively asked them where they're going next and they were coming down to the Eastern Cape to visit a place called Karika so I was absolutely delighted that they weren't going north to the Kruger they they clearly done their homework um, and they said no we read up about it and uh, the publicity said that this was the place to come if you want an authentic experience. So you're clearly doing your your job there. So you can expect some of the some of the Barmy Army to come your way. But I wanted to just just close up now to come back to the future um, of of probably our landscape in the Eastern Cape, and you're going to play a big part of that. There's talk of opening up opening up a corridor of land so that we can rewild parts of the Eastern Cape and certainly Southern Africa. Um, are you involved in that? And the other question is, do you think that that is viable? Will it ever happen? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think um, all of us would, would, would like to open up more and more of the Eastern Cape uh, to conservation. And um, we actually, uh, the positioning of Kariha, uh, which is now 11,500 hectares, um, which is a nice size for, for a game reserve, big five game reserve, we sort of, the Bushman's River runs right the way through the middle of, of Kariha. And uh, the Bushman's River Valley then continues uh, to the likes of Amakala, which I think then connects, uh, can connect under the, the N2 to Lalibela, which is adjacent to Shamwari, etc., etc. So it's a natural corridor for, for the guys to look at first, I think, in the Eastern Cape, the, the Bushman's River Valley. And I know there's a team, um, I'm not, not personally on that committee, but my sister Lindy's on that committee with Dr. William Foles. I think he's very involved and he's driving it. They've got some excellent people who've got a lot of experience in putting corridors of land under conservation. And uh, it might take a few years, but I, I definitely think something will, will happen and we're very, very open to it. Um, uh, the world needs more land to be under conservation so that's a natural corridor they've, they've earmarked in the Eastern Cape and, and let's see what happens um, but it's, it's, it's exciting you know, as we do go into the future yeah. Well I'm certainly um, I'm certainly enjoyed our time together I mean, given the sport chat as well as conservation and uh, we do live in a unique part of the world uh, I think there are opportunities here in the Eastern Cape that probably don't present themselves elsewhere um, I do encourage anybody listening to go and visit Karik uh, 
Africa. It's one of the most beautiful parts of, 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 of the Eastern Cape, if not South Africa. And um, I look forward to delving into your story a bit further because I know the Rushmere families go back, goes back a long way in the Eastern Cape, and not, it's, it's, a, it's a great, it's a great human story. I mean, you you mirror the challenges of South Africa. We've talked at length about how your family went through the Second World War, for example, and those kind of things. So perhaps there's a book there in the future, and I look forward to working with you with that. No, definitely. We we we've chatted, and um, I know you're going to get involved in in. We want to we want to create we want to record the the Kariha story, and you're the perfect guy to get involved with us. So we we look forward to that. Um, but yeah, you you're quite right. I mean, the Eastern Cape is an unbelievable part of South Africa, and um, you know the, it really is becoming more and more well known as a real game destination uh, in in South Africa. And yeah, we're very thankful. It's been a long journey. We've been going 33 years. Um, Shamwari 31 years. So so we, so, so it's a, a long time in the, in the making. And um, yeah, it's it's uh, we 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 definitely. Uh, I always say that the Kruger is a very different, it's, it's a unbelievable, it's a real bushveld, etc. Et, et, et but the Eastern Cape is a different type of experience, but a wonderful experience. And, and uh, yeah, so thanks for the chat and look forward to getting out there and showing you Kruger properly. Thanks so much, Mark. Yeah, thanks. That was Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. For more podcasts, visit algoafm.co.za.